Oh my god, this is incredible. It it's it's got it's got something to it. I'm trying to describe it. It's like a char, it's like a it's the, the hickory, smoky, uh it's, it's um podcasty. Yes, that's it. Ooh. Okay. You know, lots one of the most quotable movies in the entire Disney canon. Now yeah. I pick the sweatiest possible option. Yeah, yeah, you pick one of the more, like, minor quote moments. Like, seriously, there's an entire, like, I'm literally just looking up Ratatouille quotes. And there's, like, that sort of Facebook boomer grandma thing where you just have, like, an image with a quote attached to it. Yes, <laughs> with, like, the minions. You know minions. what, it, like, they, like, they just post that? Yeah, yes. it's or that, Snoopy but or something. With, yeah. Yes, it's that, but with Ratatouille characters, which is wild. <laughs> that the, the wild, one of the wildest things I read in my research for this movie is they were like, it was very tough for Disney to market this film because it's like, there's all these big films coming out this year. Shrek the Third, Spider-Man 3, Pirates 3. And you're like, we have to sell parents on getting their kid a plush rat. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to the Disney desk, everyone. Carter here. And I'm Sydney. And welcome to a rare circumstance, a slightly early Patreon's Choice episode. Yes. Um, for those of you that have been around a while now, you know that it's usually the last episode of the month where we let our patrons vote on an episode. Um, but because of certain things, I mean, we can tell people, we, we want to go see Wish in theaters and potentially make it next week's episode but it hasn't come out yet as of the date of this recording and so we needed to kind of rotate some things around so that we could fit that in uh within the month of november so Mm -hmm. hope you don't mind i'm sure you don't um our patrons had a little less time to vote but that's okay they're usually pretty snappy with it when i publish them and um you know it's november we're kind of in between like major like, I mean, it's not that we're in between major seasons. I was going to say, like, okay, Halloween has a very strong theme. I feel like every week we, like, we toil with this again and again of, like, how do we describe Thanksgiving? Like, we get it. But, like, there is something sort of abstract. It's like the back rooms. It's a space between yeah, spaces. right. It's and the purgatory. No, you're right. It is, like, because it's not autumn and winter. It is Halloween, Christmas. Yeah. And then just like the void spaces in between. Right. The orange and the brown. This isn't autumn. This is just not Halloween time. Right. Exactly. January is not winter. It's just not Christmas time. Yeah. So, so anyway, like as we're struggling to reach for like things that kind of fit a November theme, um, we're like, okay, food, that's, that happens at Thanksgiving, right? (laughs) Correct. So. And this is really. This is really the only Disney movie that is about, like, there are a lot of movies where food is a prominent thing. Like, right. Coco, it's prominent. Mm-hmm. In Encanto, it's prominent. But, like, this is the one where it's, like, food is not just a, like, metaphor or frame of reference or, like, a plot element. But it is the right. plot itself. Right. And also a metaphor. Exactly. Yeah, it's not just about food, but the, about people's relationship to food. Right. It's other than Eddie's million dollar cook off, which is which is wholly <laughs> dissimilar than this movie. Truly, yeah. <laughs> For some reason, both films are like, what if Billy Elliot but food though? Literally, yeah. That's Eddie's million dollar cook off. Did we mention it's Ratatouille? If we haven't mentioned that yet, I feel like we're doing Ratatouille. 
like we've been talking for several minutes now, and if they didn't get it at this point, like you gotta go to the hospital. You might be having like a brain aneurysm. Well, you know, I I don't put it past any of our listeners. Uh, Today we're talking about Ratatouille. Yay! Yes. Woo! Uh, The two thousand seven Pixar film. I believe it was their. It's their eighth film. it is Brad Bird's uh, third directorial film. I'm excited to talk about him in the context of this. It is a very interesting sort of pivot point in the history of Pixar, in the history of Disney, and just a weird, 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 weird fucking film. Do you remember the marketing for this movie? Like, I know we usually yes. save this part for after we do our, like, mini thing, but, like, what's your relationship with this movie? It's, like, I don't know. I... You know, the dates, like, not to get too much into, like, my personal, like, past and everything, but it's, like, there are certain, like, major, like, (laughs) there's certain major events in my childhood that, like, make certain blocks of years, like, truly just, like, a blur of, like, nothingness. And, like, unfortunately, that is, like, 2006 to truly, like, 2010, honestly. And, like, but I, but I feel like I have a relationship, like, we've talked about this before that like our generation has like a sort of unique relationship to television and like advertising on television Mm. and I feel like um we were exposed to so much like consistent repetition of things that like certain commercials are just like ingrained in our brains and I feel like I remember a lot of the commercials of this like yeah I mean when you talk about like the quotable moments like I can't tell you how many times they pushed that whole like it sounds like rat and patootie part like I remember that being in every ad the the whole marketing campaign for this was rat and patootie coming back to it as adult you're like it's (sighs) it's desperate it is a studio that just does not want to release this movie but is contract like they're in too deep and they've already spent too much money like, so much obsession over, like, these dumb Americans aren't going to get it unless we right. literally spell it out. Right. Switching it to the phonetic spelling right. in multiple things. Um, yeah, I just remember, I remember the ads. And, like, as a kid who was, like, turning up his nose to animation, I was like, what the hell is this? What is this thing? French? Like, French? this is also, like, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> like the late Bush era, keep in mind. You know, we, oh, we yeah, had turned on our brothers in France. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we had, the free, it was Freedom Fry na- was sweeping the nation. Right. Um, but, yeah, I just remember, like, I, like I, I just remember, like, they really leaned into, like, the slapstick. They really leaned into, like, like the three or four, like, big comedy bits they just really leaned into in terms of, like, Remy yelling at his brother about what he's eating. Mm-hmm. The, oh, like, yeah. The guy having all the rat bites on him, like... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember just the poster in particular, which was just the least artful. For a film that is so artful, it is like Remy reaching up for cheese as there's knives lining around him. And I'm right. like, this is the truly the least accurate like poster game. to... Yeah, least accurate poster to movie Pixar has ever done in terms right. of like the actual tone and candor of a movie. Um I remember they did scratch and sniff cards in a magazine that were disgusting. Oh. Okay, wait. Before we get, like... Because I know we'll talk more and more about this in a couple minutes, obviously. Um, but, like, one note about the casting. I had this, like, weird Mandela effect when I, like, looked this up. I swore Linguini was voiced by um, Schwimmer. 
really? And he was I'm originally a part of the cast, but I don't remember who he played. I'm realizing that, like, oh, this was the same era as, like, Madagascar. And, like, I think yes. all of that marketing, that was really strong. Because they had, like, an A-list cast for that, like, mm-hmm. is all just blurring together in my mind. I don't know why I swore this was David Schwimmer. And then I looked at him and I was it like, really who is, is that? It really is a hell of a time to be alive during CGI animation. Really, like, if you want to understand DreamWorks at this era and Pixar, it's Madagascar leaning into its memory and yeah. just whatever. To the 10th degree, and yeah. Ratatouille just being like, how the, f- what do we, how do we sell this to children? We made this too artful, damn it. <laughs> yeah, like, wait, Pixar, what were you thinking? <laughs> now you're just being, now you, like, I, I get it, I get it. You just made, like, you know, you just made Incredibles, you just made all these movies. Like, now you're just, like, this is too right. much swag. You gotta pull it back a little bit. Right. <laughs> um, we have a lot of fun stuff to dive into this movie. But first, what do you say we go to the movies? Yeah, that sounds like fun. Uh, Let's go. Let's go to the movies. All right. So for this week in Let's Go to the Movies, we are covering sort of a franchise that I thought we would talk a lot more about. Right. Um, we are covering the film The Marvels, Marvel Studios' latest film centered on the fun adventures of Captain Marvel, Monica Rambeau, and Kamala Khan. You know, it's so interesting that you mention that you thought we might talk more about this. Honestly, me too. And for as we made a big, whole branding for it. Right. For for as as big of fans as you and I are of Marvel, it's been a really minuscule part of our podcast. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Yeah. I think a part of it is we're very conscious of our branding being primarily animation. And I do feel like we have these very strong moments where, like, well, we have to do Disney, Disney. Um, Yeah. You know, maybe we just need to do, like, an omnibus episode where we just talk all Marvel like we did for Star Wars and burn ourselves out on it. Right, exactly. And then never talk about it again. (laughs) <laughs> and then it's like, you know, it's like, are we going to do an episode for every single Disney Plus show? Like, because we also started yeah. at a weird point when it was still primarily Disney Plus stuff. Right. Then we made the branding of let's go to the movie. So it's like, well, any movie that comes out, we can just cover it there. Like, you know, I feel like we're now saving like our full movie breakdowns of like in theater stuff for like very special circumstances. Right, right. And then it's just like Marvel really did like because the internet weirdos kind of hollowed out the husk of Star Wars, sort of just made it not fun to talk about. It's like they moved to, they moved immediately to Marvel as the next biggest thing. This is getting not fun to talk about either. Yeah, especially because unlike Star Wars, it brings together like snooty film people, but also like far-right weirdos. Like, again, I just like, Imagine using Martin Scorsese, one of the greatest living directors, who's being weirdly personal and candid as he reaches what he fears is the end of his life, knowing he might not get to make another film. Right. Like, imagine using that as, like, a baton to whack people who like the comic book movies. Yeah. I'm just like, well, then you don't really like film, then, if that's what you're boiling this great man right. down to. Exactly. Um, and, y'all, and, y'all, I know you're doing that, because if you are, we're actually seeing Killers of the Flower Moon, it would be making... 
Maybe not Oppenheimer money, but it would be making a lot of money. Right. Um, And it's like, yeah, I mean, all right, you win. Yeah, you win. People don't like talking about Marvel anymore. That's what you wanted, right? To win. Right. But I digress. Um, But... I hate starting out with this, like, weird little bummer, because this movie I know. fucking rules. Yeah, I was about to say, like, spoiler alert, we love this movie. <laughs> I genuinely am having trouble not just putting it in my top ten Marvel, if not, like, right. grazing the top five. Oh, yeah. No, like, this whole this whole experience of, of, of sitting there watching this from, from scene to scene, I was like, there's no way people don't like this. Right? That, like, <laughs> especially because the people who are giving it good reviews keep qualifying it as like, well, it's not perfect, or you know, if I was going to nitpick. And I'm like, one, I hate that we do this for films with like a lot of internet drama. Like, yeah. no, stand behind the things you like. Swing your, right. like, you know, sh- you know, advocate for things you like, damn it. Right. Don't qualify your statements. Right, exactly. But also, like, yeah, as I'm watching it, I'm like, all right, where's the, like, hook... Like, where's the rug pull going to be? Where's the part that I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I can see where people are saying it. And it just didn't come. Nope. And then you and me sit there in the theater for just... Yeah. We just sit there in the theater for a minute. And then finally, one of us goes, was that good? Yeah, I was like, uh, so you're telling me people don't think this is fantastic? This, this is absolutely delightful. Yeah, and, like... I don't know. I, like, with a lot of Marvel films, because, like, the trick with Marvel is a lot of their stuff is, like, B-minus to B-plus territory with a handful of, like, ones that go up to A-plus when it's, like, you know, James Gunn or the Black Panther franchise or, like, you know, individual moments depending on your personal taste or feelings. But I'm... And I assumed, like, after I saw this, I'd be like, well, there's that problem and that problem. You know, kind of have the Quantumania thing mm-hmm. where I'm like, that was kind of good. And then as I sit on it, I'm like, mm, mm, yeah. But no, it's only gotten better the more I think about it. Right, right. Ugh. Where do we even begin to talk about this? <laughs> um, well, here's one little... Like, I actually made notes because I wanted to, like, make sure I talked about all of the things I wanted to talk about for mm-hmm. this. Um, for starters, like, it's always a challenge with a lot of these Marvel franchises that, like, they change directors out. Like, it's hard for a franchise especially one as big and as, like... Because you have the challenge of, like, the whole Marvel thing, but then you have the individual franchises in there. And it can be really hard to, like, keep a consistent, like, not just visual style, but, like, tone, narrative focus. Because it's, like... I mean, the Thor films are the best example of that, where it's, right. like, Kemp Branagh had a very specific image for what he thought Asgard was and, like, sort of the tempo and tam, like, color of Thor and his friends. Then we have Thor the Dark World, which was just... Mm-mm. You know, a film, basically a directorless film. Right. And then Taika Waititi, and then Taika Waititi basically got just it dumps right. all that out to do his own thing. Right. <laughs> um, so for Nina DaCosta to come in and, like, actually grapple with the original, especially because it's been, it's been since 2019, or was it 2018 when Captain Marvel came out? I think out? it was it's 2018, yeah. Yeah. It's been, like, half a decade. And for her to come in and not just do better than the previous, like, right. creative team... But also actually make a film that talks and speaks to a lot of the stuff in the original Captain Marvel. Right. Tonally, thematically, sort of, especially narratively. I did not expect so much of the narrative to be tied into the strands that were set up with Captain Marvel. Right. It's it's incredibly impressive. Yeah, you know, I hope this isn't, like, a spoiler. Like, it's it's not a spoiler. Um, But I'll say this. 
what I actually like about this film that sets it apart from certainly other Marvel movies, but perhaps this is just like a movie trope in general that I grow sort of like fatigued of, of like feeling that like all is lost. I mean, there certainly is a point in Marvel movies where you're supposed to like maybe for half a second believe that the hero isn't going to win. And I feel like that sort of never happens in this that that I, you never quite feel that they're going to that they're actually going to like fail. In other words, like I th- I feel like I always hate the trope of um of characters like having a big like disagreement or like having a huge like misunderstanding that like sends them all in their in opposite directions and that's part of the reason why this has to fail and this movie has clear scenes where they're like let's talk about it (laughs) we can resolve this issue here and now if we just have one conversation and i feel like i that's so underrated and i appreciate that yes i like people have talked about the runtime for this film and i would describe it as one thank god i'm so tired of these things being required to be 215 to 230 like like just this film eschews bloat, it eschews, like, padding. Mm-hmm. And, like, understands, it, it, like, I described it in my notes as, like, brisk plot but rich story. Yes. Basically, anything that does not, like, complement the story, basically anything that does not enrich our, like, characters or world building or the themes that all of them have just gets cut. And that's what you're talking about. There's no scene where, like, Kamala Khan is so, like, disillusioned she leaves the team. Right. Or, like... You know, we have argument scenes between Monica and Carol, but it's like, but they work it out because at the end of the day, it's like, they all want to like each other. Like, it's a weirdly humanist film in terms of like, you know, like, they all want to like each other. They all want to believe in each other. Exactly. Like, it is these, you know, it's a story about like tiers of superheroes. Exactly. Like, a person who looks up to this person and a person who looks up to both of them. Right. And like... So, of course, they're going to work it out. Of course, they're going to fix it. And it's, like, askew art... Like, it throws out, like, those sort of artificial plot conflicts in favor of, like, emotional conflicts. Where it's, like... Yeah, yeah, it's, like, we know they're going to save the day. We know they're going to make up. But are they going to be able to overcome the baggage they have? Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. honestly, the best example of that is, like, instead of having, like, the requisite 30-minute boss fight at the end, like... It's, I can't help but compare this to a lot of the, like, a lot of Phase 4 and Phase 5. And it's, like, we were, a lot of We were comparing very, it to Civil War in, like, unnecessary boss fight. Yes. Like, the best example is you have this really cool fight with all the Marvel characters beating mm-hmm. each other up in the airport. And while I love the switcheroo where they finally get to this place where the secret, like, the super soldiers are supposed to be... And then it turns out this is actually just, like, a really ugly, like, dark fight between Iron Man, Captain America, and Winter Soldier. That fight is, should be five minutes max. Right. Instead, it's, like, 15 it's minutes a lot of, of conversation. like, Bucky climbing out of a giant, like, missile silo. And I'm like, yeah. wait, wait the, the, con- the story is already set. Why are we wasting time? Now we're just right. padding. Right. Like, we're literally just filling runtime. Where it's, like, instead it's, like, instead in this one it's, like, no, we know they're going to win. Let's focus it on the emotional conflict between these characters. Like, that's why I don't, like, don't even buy into, like, the villain isn't very good because the villain serves the characters perfectly. Right. Again, an antagonist, like, in terms of, like, narrative structure is supposed to be, like, the, like, 
opposite, like a direct conflict of like what the characters want, what their emotional right. need is. Not just an obstacle for them to get over with like their, you know. And, and that works perfectly. Again, Darben as an antagonist, as this like sort of Cree sort of acolyte right. person living in the ruins of the Cree world. Like, again, all of it funnels down perfectly because it's like she looks down on Captain Marvel, they look up to Captain Marvel. Exactly. Especially since, like, the first one leaves off with Carol just breaking the surface of her own history and her own, like, dealing with the consequences of of what happened to her and becoming a Cree soldier in the first place. Like, that was never resolved in the first film. Yeah. And, like, this film does this incredible economic job of, like, effectively stitching the gap between... Captain Marvel in this film and also like the gaps of like why is Carol so aloof why is she so like yeah you know and you talked about like Captain Marvel as a character and how her comics are but like right she always does have this detachment to the larger Marvel world for me I don't know if you can speak on that a little bit oh yeah I mean that's that's certainly the way well what's it's interesting um her presence in like Endgame and in um, wherever else we've seen her in her own film, yeah, they always present her as like, you know, for whatever reason, and I guess it makes perfect sense that the only other person that she like has an established kinship to is Nick Fury, the only other like really aloof, detached person. <laughs> Um, who, it, like, it, looks over everyone. Right, it makes He's sense. He's the deus ex machina they, guy who doesn't have the power to fly through a ship. She's yes, the deus ex machina guy that who can. does, yeah. Um, so, you know, but they present her as, as being, like, really, yeah, like, de- detached and cold. And even sort of her, like, funnier... Like, they always present her as being dry, I think is, is the word mm-hmm. for it. And, you know, I... As someone who reads a lot of comics and has read a bit of, like, um, specifically the newer iterations of Captain Marvel, that these are supposed to be modeled after, that that this version yeah. of her in the MCU is but supposed to be But they're in a conversation with. Correct, correct. Um, there, are so much, there are so many similarities that I haven't really seen until the Marvels. And it's more, like, it's, it's more similarities in... In, in mood and in sort of emotional weight that I think is really impactful. Um, because in the comics, Carol is, like, depressed. Like, she... It's, it's everybody in her life. It's not just, like... She's not just detached and aloof in a superhero context. But, like, she doesn't really have any intimacy at all with anybody um, in her life and her, in what family members that she does have, or, um, there, there is nothing about her that is ever sort of allowed to be soft. And underneath that, you know, I I was saying this to you that like, I think like Peter Parker gets to be kind of like the sad boy of the comics. And it's like, yeah, it's it's a pretty typical trope of like, of, of, um, superheroes having to grapple with loss and like the consequences of what they do and feeling isolated. One of the core things in Marvel comics is that power always comes with a cost. Exactly. You don't just get to have powers. Exactly. But for Captain Marvel in her comics, they are like, they are profoundly sad. They, even, even after her victories, like 
the artists just do such a good job of sort of really illustrating like the the essence of like deep deep isolation um mm-hmm. and and feeling very truly <laughs> um just like melancholic it's and somehow that like it's it's so strange i'm almost having a hard time articulating it because like in this film it's not that this is like a sad film but it somehow right. expresses like really really profound grief and there there is like a very sharp vulnerability that comes out here that to me is almost right. an exact mirror to the to its comic right and like i think the film does a good job of being like it's not that she doesn't want people in her life she's a no. person she's like charming i think the like that's the strength of picking brie larson an inherently goofy charismatic person to play a character right. who's like kind of chosen to be stoic who's kind of chosen Correct. to be detached like i think again in terms of talking about like briskness of plot and richness of story like the sort of transition period from when she's on her own to getting like the marbles together like we see her on her little ship where she's basically just serving as like a like basically like space an emergency cop. superhero yeah she's a space cop <laughs> i didn't want to use the phrase but she's a space cop <laughs> right. um you get this incredible, gorgeous shot where the like the camera is basically upside down as she like slowly dives off a ship and floats in space, mm-hmm. and you just get like the vastness of space, and then it gets undercut later because you have the scene where Monica and Kamala first get on her ship and realize how much of a mess the place is, and like yeah. you just have that moment of like so it's literally just been her and this fucking cat right. for how long now? How many months? has it been since she's seen another human being? Yeah. Like, how long has it been since she's seen someone from Earth? And, like, that's kind of what I mean in terms of, like, richness of story. Like, this is why you get a talented director. Like, you get, like, a really good visual, like, exciting young director for this thing. Because it's, like, so much economic storytelling by just what you see and, like, incidental lines. There's no scene... Like, as much as I like Loki season two, there's a little too much for my taste of like characters literally just talking about the themes, literally mm-hmm. just spelling it out at each other, being like, this is why the TVA is this, or this is why we did this. This is how I feel about this. And it undercuts mm-hmm. so much of the like great art direction and sort of like acting for like, you know. <laughs> yes. And again, I, I really like Loki. This, I, Sid, you really should watch it. The I know, finale yeah. is beautiful. Like oh, the man. last three episodes, fucking cook. Um, and I'm like, yeah, that's, oh, that's why Tom Hiddleston loves this character. But anyway, like the example for me, like such a great example and like we're avoiding spoilers for this part at least, but Mm -hmm. so the first time they all kind of like fight together, like they were on, like they're on a Kree ship, they're fighting, they're kind of just figuring out what's going on. So it's like sloppy as the like main villain Darben escapes, Monica and Carol chase after her because they can both fly. Obviously, Kamala can't. She doesn't have that in her power set. So she's just kind of stuck there standing on the ship. And she looks back and realizes that all of the non-combatants on this ship are hiding. They're literally cowering behind desks and, like, screens Mm -hmm. and, like, whatever big object they have. And it's not spelled out. No one says anything. She just... And, you know, she makes a little joke, just enough so your brain doesn't fully grapple with what you're seeing. And then Carol comes back onto the ship. And you immediately see a wide shot where they all, like, go back to hiding. You don't have to say a word. You right. don't have to underline it. You don't have to overstate it. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, right. This is, She's like, the gun. Carol is a boogeyman to these people. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, 
like we talk a lot about like I don't know I feel like as we get into this late Marvel period and I hate like because so many of the reviews I read feel like they're more thesis statements on Marvel as a whole than this yeah, actual exactly. movie and I hate to do that myself but it's like, like not to sorry not to interrupt you but like yes like this the like people have been like holding their breath waiting to be like Marvel is Jover and like yeah. they waited I for mean, this they basically been like, doing See? it for a calendar year right. <laughs> I mean, it, I don't know. Again, like, if you don't like Marvel movies, fine. Cool. I Like, I would argue they're the best at the game, you know. <laughs> right. Like, if some, someone else would have done this if they could have done this. <laughs> I also just don't believe that people don't like this. Like, that's a lie. This specific movie? Yes. I'm like, are you, <laughs> what are you guys seeing? I'm like, if you want to get mad at Ant-Man, yeah, that's fine. I'm a little uh-huh. disappointed with that movie, too. Um, if you want to get mad at, like, Secret Invasion, I didn't even bother to watch it. Um Someone yeah. described it, I, I wish I remembered who described Secret Invasion. It's like, imagine the Scott's Tots episode of The Office, but with the metaphor of a refugee crisis. And you kind of <laughs> get why that might have been a bad idea. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so like, I feel like people don't know what they want these things to be anymore. And like, there's so much talk about like, I don't know, there was always that pretentious thing in like the late 90s to get people to take comic books seriously of like, oh, this is the modern myth, you know, Superman is Moses, right. you know, it's mythology. It's, and I'm like, no, they're fairy tales. Yeah. Like, they are, like, morality, they're stories about morality that you, like, present to children that adults can understand mm-hmm. with, like, larger-than-life magical characters. And for me, this, like, film is the perfect embodiment of that in terms of, like, a story about these magical people right. n- learning the lessons they need to know to get to where they need to get. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of what other stuff we can talk about here. I don't want to overdo the talk here because, well, I'll just say, and also, like, again, I like Ant-Man, but, like, you can really tell how compromised Quantumania was in terms of, like, Mm -hmm. the sort of scheduling stuff because it's like, oh, they keep cutting off the main action beat. Like, Ant-Man traditionally is arguably the best visual style in the MCU in terms of, like, such clear visual rules for the action. Mm-hmm. Whereas that film, it's like, oh, it's breaking all of its rules. You can tell it's like a mm. uh, VFX team just scrambling to get enough done with what right. they have. Whereas this film, it's like, my God, people on a fucking set with wires and, yeah. like, choreography, every action Punching, scene. Kicking. like Especially for character, like characters whose powers are pew 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 blasty hands, right? Uh, phasing through things and pow pow pow, pow, pow crystal glass over hands. there. Yeah, yeah, I can reach um, yeah. <laughs> to have such weight and impact on every single hit and every single shot is truly impressive. Like again, we talked about how the boss fight is actually like crisp and clean. It's like. Yeah, but it still goes hard as hell. Right, Again, exactly. Again, there's just one shot where Kamala holds up, like, a little, like, hard light glass plane, and Darben just grabs it and smacks <laughs> it overhead, and I'm like, oh! I didn't know you, man, anybody could do that. that. I never thought about that. Yeah, you could just do it. You could just snatch them right. up. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, it's like, my God. It's so, like, you know, because Shang-Chi came out, like, two years ago now. It's like, man, it's so nice to get back to just, like, yeah. people on a set. Right. Punching each other. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anything else you wanted to talk about in well, this little section? You know, one thing that I think has been undeniable, even in the midst of like its criticism, I say very sarcastically, um, God, is we are like not the them home accusations <laughs> ever. is the the palpable um, 
chemistry between our three main leads that is just so organic and and never feels overdone and is like it's just so perfectly cast right i i genuinely can't believe how much like how much they sing because like people that's obviously been the selling point for like critics reviews but like even just seeing it in motion just truly something special again Brie Larson, I feel like, because she hasn't gotten to do a lot outside of Marvel, has kind of right. become forgotten as, like, one of our talented actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tiana Paris, like, I owe her an apology. I wasn't really familiar with her game. <laughs> yeah. And Iman Villani, she just, like, I mean, I genuinely, I'm like, forget Miss Marvel. You should probably just have Kevin Feige's job when this is over. <laughs> Why do you say that? I just... Like, again, the amount of passion she brings to all of this, like, the genuine excitement she has that she gets to be a part of a Marvel thing. Right. On top of the fact that she's just really good, and it's like, oh, yeah, her character is the heart of this now. Exactly, yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. for so long, they were, like, spinning it to be, like, Spider-Man's taken over, but it's like, no, 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 no. This is Mm -hmm. Miss Marvel's universe. She's, like, the emotional core of everything. And what it's kind of, like, also just a perfect collection of characters. Like, I just really like the range. Like, again, I, I... like, the challenge with Captain Marvel is her powers are so punchy, like, you kind of have to make, like, I appreciate they made a story about, like, what it means to be a superhero, and, right. like, you know, because for Kamala, it's saving people. Like, mm-hmm. turning her powers into, like, oh, she can make hard lights, so she can make, like, platforms and slides. It makes her powers way more defensive and about, like, exactly. protecting as Defunctive. opposed to attacking. Right. Monica's main ability is literally to sneak in. make it so she can't get hit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And they both look up to Captain Marvel, who, like, looks the most superhero-y. Right. Like, again, so much unspoken stuff with, like, Kamala Khan and Carol Danvers' relationship of, like, one of the reasons why Kamala looks up to Carol is she looks, quote-unquote, regular. Um, oh, interesting. Which was such a subtext in, like, the early comics. And then once right. they got, you know, and, like, a, people forget she could, like, polymorph in the comics. Like, she could change, like, her appearance. Like, yeah. the first time she uses her power, she accidentally turns into Carol Danvers. Right. Um, and it's like, yeah, grappling with, you know, their relationship to a character whose main superpower is, I'm going to break things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, guys, I don't know what to tell you. Like, we both think this movie is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. I cannot wait to see um, it again. Yeah. I. It's been very hard, because we saw basically the first screening we could. It's been right. very hard not to just go again. Right. Um, it's, for me, it's, like, kind of all of the good stuff about Phase 4 and 5 with none of, like, the bullshit. It's, like, you know, like, Shang-Chi, it's, like, got crisp, crunchy action, but doesn't have, like, the 30-minute boss fight at the end. Mm-hmm. Like, Doctor Strange, it is, like, a sort of auteur visionary director getting to cook without all of, like, the multiversal baggage like Thor Love and Thunder, it has this very fairy tale earnest energy, but it doesn't feel like, you know, it doesn't feel like there were severe scheduling conflicts due to COVID. Um, you know, it's seriously, give this film a chance. It really yes, it please really do. It. Trust us. Trust us. <laughs> yeah. If there's one legal authority in this world, it's us. It's us, yeah. <sighs> oh hey, I forgot to mention before we get back to work around here. Um we very gingerly tiptoed around some of the spoilers here for the Marvels, but uh, if you're interested in hearing all of the spoilers in the world about this movie, um, 
visit patreon.com slash Disney Desk. We will be posting a little mini bonus clip of us talking about some of our favorite specific moments from the Marvels. And you'll be able to see it um, even if you don't have uh, a subscription with us. It'll be free to watch on patreon.com slash Disney Desk. So check it out. We'll link it to this episode. All right. All right, let's get back to work, I guess. Let's get back in that kitchen, you know? We got tables. We got people. Right. Uh, just don't question why I always wear a hat from now on. What do you mean? That's part of your uniform. Obviously, you wear a hat. Right. Right. Correct. Get back to work. So, like, when we do these episodes, focusing on, like, one film specifically, I try to have, like, some kind of angle or, like, thematic idea. And this one actually was weirdly, weirdly easy. Um, My little, like, headliner I had while making my notes was, this is a story about letting him cook. Uh, This is the first... (laughs) This is the first time we have done a Brad Bird film, or at least covered a Brad Bird film in its entirety, And I kind of want to just take a minute to talk about him and sort of all the stuff that led up to the making of this movie because he is kind of one of the handful of guys who really are, is considered like a auteur of animation. Like he as an individual is like, like, like Musker and Clemens, Howard Ashman, or like Howard Ashman, like that nexus. It's very similar with Brad Bird. Like him, like I'm trying to think of other people we would do that have his level of like pedigree, honestly. Um, in a lot of ways, he's like kind of the an ultimate Disney guy because he was kind of like a wonder kid. He was like the prodigal son. Mm. Um, so when he was a kid, he um, a family connection got him like he had an opportunity to meet some of the nine old men uh, due to a family connection, and he's like, I want to be an animator. And they're like, ah, That's cool, kid. Yeah, great. Do it. And then he actually started making animation, mm. and they realized like, Wait a minute. Oh shit! You you like have it. Okay, okay. And, like, basically, he, growing up, was, like, mentored under the nine old men. They were, like, giving him advice, helping him, like, hone his technique, hone his craft. He got an internship at the Walt Disney Company very early, like, almost unprecedentedly early as a teenager. Um, He ends up going to Cal Arts in that same class we've been talking about a lot. Mm. Um, He was with Musker and Clemens. He was with Tim Burton, Henry Selleck, and John Lasseter, who will basically, unfortunately, become a big part of the story going forward. Mm -hmm. Um... He basically got a job right outside, you know, at Disney right off the bat. Um, Jeez. And it was a fucking disaster. Uh, So he, yeah, so he was there during like the dark period. He was there when they were making Fox and the Hound. He was there when they were making Black Cauldron. And unlike uh, Musker and Clemens, who kind of just gutted through it and eventually got their opportunities to make more artful film or more popular films, I guess, depending on your interpretation of art, he was a pain in the ass by all accounts. He, like, openly criticized management. He openly, like, apparently he would just constantly get arguments with, like, the middlemen between, like, the higher-ups and him. He would, like, constantly demand to, like, he would, like, storm into offices of senior leadership and, like, criticize them for playing it safe and, like, using the Walt Disney brand as, like, a defense mechanism instead of, like, using it to elevate the craft. And, like, they were all naturally, like, I'm sorry, who the fuck do you think you are? Right. You're, like, 22. Why are you acting like this? Right. Um, A common pattern in his career is he is known for being a hard ass. He's known for being, like, very stubborn about his vision and, like, 
a certain level of like quality mm-hmm. and it's interesting because like despite that like despite it just being an open like yeah he's a bit difficult like no one ever like everyone is always like high praise of him it's like I guess it is like well as long as you don't actively abuse people and more sure. just be a pain in the ass mm-hmm. and like the films are good enough you kind of like it's justified that people understand it yeah yeah Especially because he is, like, you know, he animates on his films, too, which I think helps. Like, okay. you know, he's in the mud with everyone. Yeah. Like, maybe not to the extent Miyazaki is, where he ends up just, like, touching every scene. But, right. you know, that guy obviously has his own thing going on. Right. <laughs> and, yeah, so he kind of just ends up, like, kind of putzing around. He has a lot of, like, projects in, like, near Limbo. Like, people like Spielberg, and, like, Spielberg brings him into Amblin to do a lot of tests and stuff. Because objectively, like directors and like people in the craft know he's good they know he's got the goods he's like this incredible animator with an incredible sense of vision and like ambition but like everyone higher up is like no he's diff- he's pain in the ass we're not dealing with him like he's just <clears throat> annoying um and yeah he kind of putzes around for a really long time he ends up like working on a series called family dog that never really goes anywhere um he sort of hits a career low um, when his sister's killed in a murder-suicide that almost, like, ends his Whoa. career. He just becomes so listless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the only reason I bring it up here, because, again, it's kind of important to the story, he basically has his career reestablished because he gets the Simpsons guys kind of, like, identify him and are like, we want you on the team. So he's there for, like, the really early seasons. Uh, like, he works on a lot of Treehouse of Horrors. Um, his probably most famous contribution is he came up with the character Sideshow Bob. Really? So, like, the first episode, yeah, so, like, Krusty Gets Busted is, like, sort of one of his big contributions. And basically, he becomes this guy for hire, like, King of the Hill, the critic, like, anyone who wants, like, someone to come in and just, like, clean up animation or get feedback or do, like, a little bit, he's just kind of, like, sort of, the like, a, a, yeah, he's, like, a ringer. Um and his big break comes when um, Warner Brothers, trying to chase the success of the Disney Renaissance, brings finally brings him in to work on, like, basically he goes to pitch to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers like, ah, we're not really feeling any of your pitches, but we have this project called The Iron Giant. It's, you know, it's based off some poems. It, you know, it's a musical sci-fi film. Uh, the, the Pete Townsend from The Who is working on it. He reads it, basically kind of throws out most of the pitch, but he really gets gung-ho on it because, like, the original, the original poems are kind of about grief. They, are, they were written by Ted Hughes to sort of help his kids cope with the loss of their mother. Mm-hmm. And because so much of the Iron Giant as a character is, like, he's this alien destroyer who becomes friends with a kid, he kind of leans into that because he struggles with gun violence because gun violence killed one of the closest people right. in his life. Sort of the thing that gets him, like, the job, sort of the thing that gets him the chance to make such a great film is it just has this incredible pitch where he pitches the central question of, like, what if an object had a soul? And more specifically, what if a gun knew it was a gun and didn't want to be a gun anymore? Mm -hmm. And everyone just was like, whoa. They end up making it. It's a beautiful masterpiece that no one sees because Warner Brothers has already given up on hand-drawn animation. They're fully like, why did we do this again? Why are they a studio? Spite. Like, uh, they don't want to be. They don't want to be a studio. Truly, never. And animation is the perfect embodiment of that. Because it's like, whenever Disney or Pixar does something, everyone pivots to that. And then they realize they don't want to do it within a year. That's what almost killed Sony. 
That's what hurt Blue Sky for forever. And it kills so many different projects at Warner Brothers. It's actually ridiculous. Anywho, so, like, he ends up being kind of like a guy who the Pixar gang sort of go to because they all went to school together and they trust his judgment. So, like, he's not directly working on, like, Toy Story and stuff, but he's giving feedback. He's helping them with, like, the story. Mm -hmm. And basically, they're finally like, we want you to make a film. And despite, like, the higher-ups at Disney being like, no, not this guy again, please. Mm -hmm. Like, basically because John Lasseter is bulletproof at this point in terms of, like, hey, man, I've made, like, five of your most successful films in the last decade, so uh, if I want Brad Bird to come in, he's coming in. He uh, pitches his original film, The Incredibles, and despite all of the technical hang-ups, despite being this hugely, dangerously overambitious film, like, that breaks all of these rules about, like, you can't have this many human characters, you can't make an action animated movie, you can't, you can't have these scenes of, like, really domestic conflict, you can't have a scene where characters in water because we don't know how to animate watered hair in CGI. Um, it's this huge success. He wins an Oscar, it kind of validates his career. It becomes the fourth highest grossing film of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, he takes a little break for a while, and, like, originally he was going to, and I think I've mentioned this film, he was going to do a film, live-action film about the uh, San Francisco earthquake. Okay. Like, he was working on that with Warner Brothers Forever. It kind of fizzled out. He was ready to take a break, and he gets called up by Pixar again, and they're like, hey, so I don't know if you knew about that project we had about the rats. Um, I told you what the project was originally called, right? No. The original film for, name for Ratatouille was Rats. Ew. Yes, and that's kind of the core of the problem. <laughs> so Jan Pinkava, um, he directed the short Jerry's Game, that one where the old man plays chess with himself. Yeah. Um, this was his project for a while. He's like, I want to do a story about a rat who wants to become a cook. And basically, from the word go, it was a fucking disaster of a developmental process. They basically could never, and by all accounts, it really was, I found a quote by Brad Bird that was great, just, uh, yeah, the rats kept giving people the ick, and I'm like, cool, he, he pioneered that term. Right. Um, and basically it's like, yeah, they kept trying to make them more human. They kept playing around with how much you see the rats and like the pieces never quite worked, but like they were kind of already locked into making this film. They'd already spent a lot of money on it. They'd like, as we talk about with CGI, you like design character rigs. You literally have puppets effectively. And it's like, once you design them, you can't just throw them out. It's not like a character in a hand-drawn film where it's like, well, Well, all right, there's some drones gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, we spent money on this. We can't Mm -hmm. throw this away. So basically they're like, can you come into this project that already has basically all of its characters, all of its sets, basically all of the, like, the physical parts and kind of make a new story out of it? Um, some of his big contributions are like, he kills Gustav, which I love how like blunt he is in the behind the scenes stuff. He's like, I just realized Gustav, he literally does like the hand across the throat. Um, he, I believe he comes up with like the critic being the main conflict at the end. Um, he, I think it was his decision to make Ratatouille like the core, like the mm-hmm. sort of plot solution. And yeah, sort of, he takes all of these pieces and makes something new out of them. Mm-hmm. A man who like for his entire life is like, why won't they let me cook? Why won't they just let me make the great movie I know I can make? Find something in a story about a little rat from the, you know, this great artist coming from the most unlikely place to make art. Mm. So where do you want to start? Wow, okay, so here we are. Well, see, there there are so many different places we could start here. I mean, let's talk about 
do we call it art style or do we like there's a difference between art style and storytelling style you know what i mean mm. that that kind of go hand in hand and right. let's talk about some of like the more abstract things the more abstract like visit visual cues that we get in this from the mm-hmm. jump you know right i actually i'm really charmed by the opening shot of just seeing this like the French countryside and seeing this home in the, in a rainstorm, like, and then just seeing this like pop, like something is really poet. Like something is, is really, um, I don't know the word for it, but just like something about that is really effective. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It is. It is so interesting talking about like artistic style. I would argue this is the first time like rewatching this film, I would argue this is the first time a Pixar film is full on, no cap, no like qualifiers. Truly. Beautiful. Yeah. Because like, look, Pixar has made a lot of incredible films. Toy Story still looks cool. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'd argue the only other series that, the only other one that comes close to being this like objectively beautiful, like this early is Finding Nemo, but that has the advantage of like, you see so little human. Right. Like, all of these other ones are so contingent on, like, humans mm-hmm. that it just become, you know, you're like, man, there are some real, right. there's some shots that just don't work here. Right, right, right. <laughs> Whereas this one, like, yeah, like you said, it has, like, sort of a stylism to it. Like, the characters yeah. are very caricaturized. They right. move very cartoony. The lighting in this film, like, oh going... Oh, my goodness. Yes. The lighting design in this film is so gorgeous. <laughs> yes. And it works so perfectly because, like, we have this supernaturalistic start to the movie, weirdly, right. which is wild to say about a movie about our brat who cooks in a kitchen. Right. But, as, like, you know, we have this very, like, moody countryside, this very flat lighting, and then we transition into this, like, dream-like, hazy Paris that always has, like, right. the perfect glow. Yeah. Like, and, like, that energy just carries throughout it, like, just such a strong sense of style where, mm-hmm. like, the story can be just told just as much through, like, the environment as it is what the characters are saying. Right. Um, and not to mention, like, somehow they recreate this sort of, like, kind of romantic yet vibrant lighting of, like, a restaurant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or in, like, or specifically, right. like, the the more harsh lighting sources in a kitchen. Um, that really highlights kind of, like, the science of what they're doing. Right. Like, uh, there's so many different angles. Well, I know. Okay. I know. Like, it's one of those films you just get so excited as your brain starts to remember things yeah. mm-hmm. that you have to, like, pull back a little bit. Right. So, to go back to the intro a little bit, it is kind of amazing how perfect this opening of the movie is. It's yeah. kind of a beautiful disaster because everything about it is like, no, 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 you can't make a movie like this. This is ridiculous. Right. Because we start off with, like... We start off with the logos having this sort of, like, Paris theme. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, that's a thing Brad liked to do. He liked to mess with, like, the studio logos, which apparently, like, hey. really pissed off Disney with The Incredibles. They like, do they it like, now. No, you can't do this. Yeah, now it's, like, standard. Now it's the mainstay, yeah. Yeah, it's fun when you do that. Then, like, we get this little TV opening that, like, kind of spells out the themes, and it's like, well, this is a right. little weird, but okay. It's kind of how The Incredibles started. a lot, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like up, Incredibles, like, you know, you're sort of Here's getting the us into story. the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then we have this, like, really cool, like, sort of in media's res open where the rat is diving through. But then it freeze frames and he goes, yep, that's me. That... <laughs> and my life is crazy. crazy. And then, 
we just listen as Patton Oswalt like narrates like I'm a rat, you see. Yeah, being and a rat is I gotta tough. S- yeah, and it's especially tough for me because I know how to use my, my dad nose. Just doesn't understand me. Yeah, again, just the Billy Elliot of it all. <laughs> no son of mine's gonna be cooking in a kitchen, honey. Please. <laughs> But, yeah, then, like, the shit, so much shit we got to get through to get to Paris. And yet I'm, like, every single moment of this slaps. Like, right. I, I should be, like, like, it's not just disgusting that the rats are in the kitchen. It's disgusting that we have to be this greasy to explain everything. Right. And yet it works because it, you're, like, yeah, I, I buy into this little guy. Exactly. I'm this. Well, I was going to say, even this, like, Paris cottage, like, this, like, like outskirts of Paris yeah. sort of, like, Hamlet has the most beautiful interior design. Yeah. Like, everything in this movie is a dream, which right. is something we can, like, talk about as we go on. But as you were saying? Well, I was going to say, um, basically, from, from the introduction all the way to when Remy, like, lands in Paris, actually, when he decides to, like, go up and explore, mm. um... Well, yeah, even in through that scene, I think in that sequence of him, like, being convinced, like, all right, I'm going to go up and actually, like, look around. And mm. um, why are there so many guns in this movie? <laughs> it's so fucking funny. It just, just, it's... There's too many. It, it, like, again, I think it's, like, one of the strengths of this era of, like, animators have such a, like, boomer sensibility. It's, like, someone pulls out a gun and starts shooting. <laughs> right. Like, it has like, a very Yosemite Sam energy of just, like, it's funny her, if someone just starts fi- blasting. On some level, <laughs> like, on some level it makes sense for this old woman who lives in the countryside in the middle of nature to, like, have a rifle. But for, for yeah. that to be her defense against rats yeah. is crazy. And then we just... <laughs> It gets I, me every you know time it is? to see like this couple arguing, and she pulls a gun. You on don't him. have the guts. Almost blast threat <laughs> me away, and then they just start making then out, like, and it's like, <laughs> I love. It's so funny that this movie was like one of the highest grossing in Paris, like France of all time. Like it unseated other animated films that have been there for years, right. and I'm like, that's so funny because this is such a caricaturized <laughs> of, of fucking French cartoon, <laughs> like French face nonsense. Right. Of like, you might as well have Jerry Lee Lewis fucking chain smoking while doing a little dance right, and saying exactly. sacre bleu. Um, yeah, and I think a part of it is they realize, like, if we are going to get people to buy in, this opening has to be the cartooniest shit yeah. we could possibly conjure. Like, if you don't buy into this is like a heightened, silly world, you're just never going to be able to buy into this anthropomorphic rat cooking right. in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. In terms of, like, brilliant storytelling, I love that, like, we see it from a rat's perspective for so long that when we finally have a human's perspective, it's like, Man, they just look more like rats when other people are looking at them. They do. Like, like you know, they walk That's... like cartoon characters, they talk like cartoon characters, and then when we see them from a person's perspective, they're just this shambling horde and they're squeaking. Yeah. I you know, I'm what I actually sort of appreciate about this film is that like it's it's never lost on the audience that like these are rats in the kitchen. It is truly an insane balancing <laughs> act. Because a part of the plot has to be that this is gross. Yeah. But if you make it too gross, then how the fuck then are you supposed to relate to the in. main character? Yeah. Yeah, then your just brain turns off. Right. And what's funny is apparently Brad Bird was adamant, like, apparently one of the solutions for the original draft was, like, make them so anthropomorphized they're barely rats. And he's like, no, then you, no. that defeats the purpose. Yeah. Like, it has, if the Billy Elliot part of this is going to work, it has to be very clear that they're rats and they're humans. Right. Like, obviously, Remy gets to be kind of a person. This can't be, like, um, Wallace and Gromit-styled. 
Yeah, where it's like, well, that's just a person that looks like a dog. Right, exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah, it's, again, it's so funny that we're just so cartoony and so insane off the bat. Mm-hmm. And yet it all works. You're all buying in. You're like, you learn everything you need to know about the story other than the puppeteering because that's another Which, level of sweat. Let's talk about, okay, so let, let's actually dive into the mechanics of that, shall we? Like, how do you think they arrived there? Like that that's that that was the one thing that even as a child I felt difficult to buy into. I couldn't really make sense of that. <laughs> I I really don't know. I would love to I, I think it starts from an organic place of like, well, what's the easiest place this rat could be on this person? Sure. Well, it's on his hat. Head. He's got a that, big hat. That makes sense, yeah. And then I guess I really do just think you're like, what's a funny way to solve this? And it's like well, what if he's puppeting around? Like, we have this character right. who's very lanky, who, like, yeah. kind of moves like Octodad. Do you remember that series, like, that era of video games where the joke was, like, the controls were obtuse and terrible? Correct. Yes, I do. There was, like, a series called Octodad where you, every tentacle is a different button and you basically yes. have to pretend you're a person. Mm-hmm. It's basically that. And I think it really just came down to, wouldn't that be funny? Oh, so he's like a puppet. Yeah. But it's like, you know, I don't know. You have to really suspend your disbelief here because it's like, you know, okay, so when they're doing their training montage, like, he's doing it blindfolded, but, like, he's not going to be blindfolded. Like, at some point, wouldn't Remy, I mean, uh, wouldn't Linguini, like, be able to see, like, what he's doing? Like, like, sure, he doesn't know the ingredients. Sure, he doesn't know, like, the actual instructions. But it's like, if he's being puppeted to, like, Grab you feel parsley. like you would learn something by default. You'd think, yeah, after a while, you, you'd eventually, like, kind of pick it up. Right. I think that is the one area of, like, I don't know. It Like, it's interesting. Like, so many people talk about Brad Bird's films and, like, the themes of objectivism. Like, mm-hmm. Incredibles is kind of weird in the context of, like, like, you know, the film is like, why don't the normies just step aside and let the exceptional people do their thing? And it's like, yeah, but Dash literally has an unfair advantage. Like, Right. Mm-hmm. He, he, he's actively just better at by birth than everyone else, and that's unfair. Right. Like, it's not just, like, he trains harder or... It's fairly even genetics. It's superpowers. Right. So that film always gets this weird reputation. And then he makes Tomorrowland, which is another film about, like, the normies are destroying the planet. The cool people went off to make their own place. Right. Um, and this film, I guess, is the best balance of it. Because on one hand, you're like, why isn't Linguini picking any of this up? And it's like, well, the point isn't that he can't cook. It's anyone just that he'll never cook. be a great cook. Right. Yeah, that's the idea. It's like... Right. You know, there's some people who can try as hard as they want, but they'll never be a master at something. But a master can be anyone. You know, can I, like, you're, you're sort of walking me into a talking point that, that I wanted to bring up here. And it's like, it, it is about the nature of of restaurant of the restaurant industry. And yes. um, this has to be a big talking point for me. As somebody who works in the restaurant industry not just works there but has i did like, want to talk to, i did want to bring this up because yeah. i feel like you have more like insider knowledge on this than me i i do yeah but you know it's nobody works in a restaurant by accident it comes with a degree of affection for mm-hmm. it, it's an it's an acquired taste that you that people either really love or absolutely loathe and and can't be there mm-hmm. but, but the people who are there love it they love being right. in a restaurant they love even if it makes them miserable that area of even even if it is the most insane place you've ever been it's abusive it's sometimes it's hostile 
and it's gatekeeping. Like it's all so that you can, um, so that the people sitting in your dining room um, are having the best experience of your life. You have to suffer so that they can right. be good guests in like, what is your home, essentially. Um, which again, I can't imagine why a somewhat auteur, difficult to work with artist immediately caught on to this plot and grafted it into his well, image. Well, there you go. But you know, I, I honestly think this. Even though they do all of the like, I mean, I could, I could tell you like all of the little gimmicky things that you see in the movie with them, like mm. all of the all of the TikTok jokes about restaurants are true. Like, you ever see like um, all of the like the TikTok. Um, like videos that make fun of like Hell's Kitchen, where they're like, "No chef, yes chef, behind, behind, like corner, yeah, corner." It's all the bear stuff, right? All of that, yeah. The bear. That's that's the show that people are doing where they're like, "Behind, behind, corner, corner, hot, hot." Like that. That is all actually one hundred percent true. Um, you need to talk like that in a kitchen, and it is just people constantly shouting cues at each other and and it absolutely cannot be any other way even even the most well-equipped kitchens with technology like to like with screens and like with orders coming in requires shouting like it's just a part of it but and i've seen the kitchen you work in it is not like it is a small box the size of a walk-in closet um but like it's the the scene the, the part for me that actually really encapsulates like the spirit of the hospitality industry and the restaurant industry is when, I mean, it's it's actually the whole onboarding process for Linguini when he is just like, he's already, he's there because he's already been hired. Somebody right. was like, I'll take a chance on you. And, and for Colette to step in and be like, uh, what's our mission statement? What are we doing here? Like in underneath the chaos is a devotion to like that, a core belief of of the 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 place that you are in and i like that that even though these people regardless of their own opinions of linguini as a person um Mm. like uphold the integrity of their message throughout and say nope anyone can cook and if we're going to call ourselves gusto we have to abide by that even if he's just a garbage boy even if he's just a garbage boy Anyone can cook. I really like all of the things that they do with Colette. Yes. You know, one of the things, like, because there's a lot of talk about, like, how many, because as you sit down and try to explain all the beats of this plot, you're like, man, there's a lot going on. And apparently they made cuts. Like, basically all of, like, the chefs got cut down to the bare minimum so you can, like, connect with them and like them, but Mm -hmm. not, like, you know, there's a lot less plot there. And for me, why it works is, like, Remy is the spoke that all of, like, the parts of the... Or the center of the wheel that all of the spokes come off. I don't yeah. know wheel terms. But, like, yeah, it's, like... At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter... Like, the fact that Linguini is related to Gusto is irrelevant to... Like, it, Linguini right. is not the part of that. It's that because the image... The vision of this restaurant that Remy loves is being destroyed. And getting Linguini the actual position will save that. Like, mm. you know the connections to the rat family and the whole like, oh, humans will never understand you. Just the desire We're to the cook. mafia. Like, yeah, it all it all connects <laughs> back to every major plot beat connects to Remy. Right. And that's why I struggled with Coulette, because I'm like, they barely know each other. But then I realized, no, no, she is thematically so connected to him. Her entire thing. Well, and like 
Yeah, well, one, Janine Garofalo rules, but, like, her whole thing is just, like, yeah, it was hard for me to get into this field because I do not, because I am a woman. Because I'm a and woman. And this is a gatekeepy business. And it's, like, yes, of course Remy would relate to that right. and start to empathize with her because he, too, that's, well, he's an actual rat, so obviously there are tears to this, but. Right, that's my favorite, my favorite moment in with her is, like, you know, she she kind of becomes a, a mentor. She does become a mentor to Linguini. Um, and, like, they, one of, in the dialogue, he says, like, thanks for all your advice. And she goes, thanks for taking it. Like, mm-hmm. I know what I'm doing, but that doesn't mean that people listen to me. Right. And it's like, yeah, it's, it, like, it has this fun, relate like, it's like, at the same time, it's like, oh, she could just be talking to Remy. Which is why the moment when it's just Remy in the kitchen cooking and Colette kind of gives him eye, I'm kind of like, you want to date that rat? <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, again, like, so many Pixar films, it's like, are great because they have like the one sentence that can kind of sum it all up. And it really is as simple as like, anyone can cook. Or the altered version with ego of not anyone can cook, but a great cook can come from anywhere. Mm. Like, you know, all of these like weird... Yeah, it, like the camaraderie of, like, even though we barely get a lot of the other chefs, the camaraderie they have yes. just kind of carries it. Like, the camaraderie that this crazy place has that's just chaos, chaos all the time. It's like, why would you ever want to be here where it's just madness? Especially because we're seeing it from Remy's perspective. Right. The first time he's in the kitchen where he's had this, like, dream, like, I'm in Paris, and he's looking down at everyone. Mm-hmm. Where the themes are being reiterated of, like, well, everyone here is important. Every person who makes the pe- touches the piece of art a part of them is in it. Right. He falls in and immediately it becomes hell zone. There's knives flying all over the place. He almost gets put in an oven. He almost gets crushed like six times. Right. He gets squeezed. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's like it becomes an immediate nightmare. And yet, in spite of all of that, we're still like, isn't this the most magical place? Right, right, truly. Um, And like, none of this works if you don't buy into that. I mean, it's like, you know, to speak to what you talked about, about like camaraderie, it's what makes the scene so impactful when they walk out on him right something about that really punches hard like because because you're right why would anybody want to be in this place and this is the thing was the breaking point was they're, they're like i'm out i don't care after who's everything in that they've been room. through i'm out just in this movie alone yeah mm-hmm. snaps in half like That's a twig it. i have to go and, it, and they're not pleased about it either like they don't it breaks their heart just as much but they feel They've got to walk away. This is a bridge too far. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, I finally read the script of this movie, and... And... No. No. No, No, not today. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's something I also love about this movie. It's, like, how, like... Like, for me, it's, like, Pixar always gets a reputation for being mature, but I feel like sometimes that gets, like, boiled down to just, like, oh, it has one scene that will make adults cry, too. And, like, Brad Bird, like, Incredibles and um, Ratatouille, and even Incredibles 2 to a certain extent, which is a little more cartoony, um, mm-hmm. just have, like, a very good sense of maturity. Not just in yeah. terms of, like, like in terms of subject matter, in terms of, like, style, in terms of narrative, in terms of right. character interactions. And one of those things is just, like, how, like, like, just sort of the ending is just really mature in terms of, like, I think I described it when I was talking about Wreck-It Ralph 2 as, like, happy but imperfect. Yeah. Like, in a cartoon, eventually all of the chefs would come back. They'd be so inspired that oh, Linguini's yeah. still trying to do it. They would all rally and help him out. Right. No, those characters are just gone. They're out of the movie. They're on to different jobs. Like, they'll get different jobs. Mm-hmm. They'll go on with the rest of their lives. Yeah. They don't save. They don't save the restaurant. The restaurant gets closed. No. Not, yeah. Like, it, like, in terms of, like, Remy's dream of cooking at Gusteau's, they failed. Right. They lost. 
but they found something just almost as good in the in, like you know they fulfilled right, exactly. their character arcs they found themselves so it's okay they proved and that anyone can cook yeah yeah again if the message is anyone can cook that's you know mm-hmm. the thing but yeah i forgot how hard that scene goes when they all just walk out like truly yeah. i'm like man what an all is lost moment where it's literally right. like oh we Truth. physically cannot do this anymore especially because no. it's like all the chaos of the kitchen also underlines, like, if you don't have a team of experts, if you don't have a team of aces if who, even, like, gamble at Monte Carlo and kill people right. with thumbs and run guns for the resistance, that might be my favorite line. He yes. used to run guns for the resistance. I don't know which one. I'm pretty sure they lost. Right. Yeah, it's like, they are, like, I don't know if this is a scene in the movie, but or if somebody says this, but it's like, yeah, the members of the kitchen are pirates. Like, Yes. It's <laughs> Oh, that was the line I meant to do in the beginning. Like, we are we are artists. We are pirates. Yeah. It there really are a, a group of like really rough people. Right. And like again, we talk about how chaotic and disastrous the beginning is, and yet it just sings so beautifully and it crescendos when you see finally see Paris and it mm-hmm. looks like the Paris from your dreams. Like mm-hmm. Again, it's just incredible the dream-like quality this film has. Especially, like, Linguini in the shitty little apartment that's literally, like, elbow to elbow. Right. But then you just look at the window, and it's like, there's fucking Paris. Yeah. And I'm like... That makes it look like paradise. Like, what more could you want than a view of the Eiffel Tower? why would you want anything else? Yeah. I mean, again, like, I don't think you ever ended up seeing my senior dorm at NYU. And it's like, literally, (laughs) the space I was in relative, I was with five other people, and my personal space was literally, I could reach arm to arm. Mm -hmm. I was in, like, a little cubby with a desk, effectively. Right. But I chose it because the window outside looked up, like, looked uptown, and the Empire State Building was just right there. Nice. Perfectly in line. I could literally fall asleep to the glow of the Empire State Building. And I'm Mm. like, where else would you rather be than right here, right now? Yeah. But, yeah, and, it, like, as chaotic and, like, masterful as the opening is, the ending is so equally masterful because we have that all is lost moment where, like, a brief moment of sobriety where all these people are like, what the fuck are we doing? Right. But then we have, but then all of these fucking rats come in and, like, we can do this. It's almost And then worse. you have to, yeah, and I'm like, oh, my God. Oh. They're not actually, and you're like, this shouldn't work. This should no. be the most disgusting, horrible thing. <laughs> but bad. because we've bought in. Because we've established this, like, we are pirates energy. Right. This, like, madcap. Why not have it be rats? Fuck it. Right. This place is chaos anyway. Yeah, let them kidnap a human being. Fuck it. Let's go. Let them kidnap two human beings. Yeah, let's let's do this. It's the opposite of Jover. Right. It's, we're all in. Like, and yeah, like, it leads up to this chaotic crescendo where we just have that class, you know, the iconic moment of this movie where he eats the ratatouille, goes back. And becomes a boy again, which is what it's all about. Like, that, that is akin to in, in the beginning when Remy is just, like, like, the background goes away and, and like, his tastes are just colors and, like, these animated, like, yes. it's just Truly light. one of my favorite animated sequences ever because I'm yeah. like, yeah, that's art. That's, like, everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Color and shape and sound and, like, music. Right. And yeah, you see that scene, and you're like, yeah, that's what all of this was about. Yeah. All of this sweat, all of this grease, all of this weird shit, mm-hmm. all of this manic plotting, and French ladies with guns and pepper spray. Yes. Again, I don't know how he didn't bring up the fact that he's, like, kissing her and looking at the pepper spray square in the eye. <laughs> like, yeah, it just all sings to this moment of, like, yeah, that's why you make art. That's why you make things. That's why you right. sweat and cut your fingers and, like, get ink all over yourself and mm-hmm. drive yourself crazy and don't sleep to make something like that. Right. And everything before that justifies it in the end exactly. if you make magic like that. And, like, 
how do you not get emotional having watching Remy sit like he's so like hyped up from the night. He's mm-hmm. like, I'm not going home. I'm just going to walk around the town. And he just sits looking out at the Eiffel Tower and a sunrise comes up. We hear the line in this humble critic's opinion, the finest chef in all of France. And you're just like, we wow. fucking won. Right. Just the Ugh. ultimate win, arguably the most ultimate win any Pixar character gets. Right, exactly. In terms of, like, dream to success. And you know um, what's sort of interesting? It's like, I'd, I would argue that this film never really has, like, a strong villain. Like, mm-hmm. if, if it did... It a few. Then this... Right, there's a, there's a few villains and... And if their worst if their worst problem is that rats don't belong in kitchens, that's just valid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't need a villain because the antagonist to Remy's like dream, is like his law. arc, is the fact that he is a fucking rat right. and he wants to work in a fucking kitchen. Exactly, and that's inherently that just incorrect. Can't happen. Yeah, yeah. So you don't need a villain. So that like so the villains kind of become more like mm-hmm. thematic obstacles right, because exactly. like. You know, Skinner is this sniveling little coward. I love, even when Cousteau was alive, he's peddling, like, frozen burritos and stuff. Ugh, yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's, there are, vi- basically, the villains are villains to art. They are villains to craft. Like, one is the sellout. Like, the guy who's, like, you know, taking the brand name and distilling it down to caricaturized garbage. I, think- I forgot that all of the posters talk. That's hilarious. I love that part, yeah. I yeah. think the critic, I forget what the critic's name is. Egon. Oh, oh, he's Ego. That's right. Which is like, okay, cool. Like, great name. But, yeah, um... Of course. I, I like, he, he does make mention to, like, I think he compares him to, like, he says, like, Monsieur uh, Boyardee or something like that. It's like... Which I do feel like we always have that culture discourse of, like, no, Chevardee was actually a great guy who, like, fought in a war yeah. and, like, made <laughs> perishable food, non-perishable food for people. Right. But I digress. But yeah, like at the end of the day, like again, they're thematic villains. Skinner represents like, how could you take the beautiful, like how could you take the artistry and important of the name Gusteau and turn it into this caricaturized, like basically use the brand as a defense. Yeah. Like distill it down to like lowest common denominator, entertain, I mean food. Um, And ego is just like, you know, the perils of sticking your neck out and trying new things and like pushing yourself to the brink. Right. Like, again... It's so funny because so many films try to do a critic as a villain, and it always mm. fucking sucks. Yeah. I don't, have you ever heard of a film Lady in the Water by M. Night Shyamalan? No. It is, it's a weird film. It is very metaphoric. It's about a writer, or it's, it's about a guy, it's like, I don't even know how to explain it. But basically the short version is, a critic lives in this apartment complex that's being besieged by supernatural creatures, and he makes a pithy comment about, like, oh, this would be the part of the movie where I barely escape, and then he gets eaten. Like, the idea is it's, like, basically it's M. Night taking a jab at people who don't like his movies. And okay. it's like, oh, this is so, ugh, so Got sweaty, it. so forced. Or, like, in Birdman, um, the Michael Keaton movie, where, like, the critic is, like, yeah, I'm going to give you a bad review no matter what, because I'm sad and mean all the time. Yeah. And I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a joyless bitch. Um, yeah, it's like, yeah. No, it, it's like the bouncing out with Egon where he's like, uh, Ego, where he's like, Jack Dilly an asshole, but like, you get it. You get it. Mm-hmm. Like, he loves this craft too. He wants it to be amazing. And he's right. annoyed when things aren't amazing. Right, exactly. We're all chasing that rush of feeling like a kid again. Right. Oh, man. <sighs> what, else, what else haven't we covered here? I mean, I'm not sure. I just. 
Um, yeah, I feel like the comedy in this film is underrated in terms of, there's so many great bits I forgot. Like, when they're trying to just have Remy, like, scuttle, scuttle around him, and then they step into the kitchen, and he just has, or the locker, and he just is covered in bites. And yeah. I'm like, and the scream he makes feels like the writer's trying to make this premise work. I like the, um, like, I like every opportunity, like, when he very slyly hides Remy, like, when they're in the mm-hmm. walk-in fridge, and he just cuts Incredible the light out and <laughs> snatches him up. Again, in terms of physical comedy, this film is extraordinary in terms of, like, how cartoony it is. Right. Again, we've talked about, like, how CGI animation is so much, like, puppeteering and, like, rig work and, like, that makes it hard to do certain kinds of phys- stretchy, exaggerated physical comedy. Right. But, like... They pull it off in Gangbusters. I, again, I feel like this is the first Pixar film that's beautiful because they just lean into stylization. I think, like, Incredibles was stylized, but the technology wasn't there, and it does mm-hmm. feel like this was, like, that helped them realize, like, okay, this is how we do humans. This is how we tell human stories. They have to look like drawing, like cartoon characters. Mm-hmm. It's the only way we can make this work. And this film is, like, cashing in the check that Incredibles wrote because, mm. like, it's like, oh, now the refine, refinement is here. The lighting is better. The style, stylization is better. The movement is better. The textures are better. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I just, you get to that shot where he's going to go kill Remy. Like, he's, like, captured this rat. And it's, like, Paris in the fog. And you're like, mm. how the fuck? This is 2008 and it looks this good. Right. Like, it really does feel like it's like, oh, this is the movie that set the Pixar style forward. Yeah. Without question. Yeah, and it's like, it's interesting because this film has like kind of a weird legacy. Like it, it was immediately a critical darling. This wasn't oh, one of those yeah. ones that comes back and gets like reappraised. It won another Academy Award. Nice. Like, um, uh, I love this from A.O. Scott from the New York Times. A nearly flawless piece of popular art as well as one of the most persuasive portraits of an artist ever committed to film. And wow. I'm like, yeah, that kind of sums it up perfectly. Yeah. And, and it did success. Like, it's a Pixar movie. It made money. But it of wasn't, course. like, the runaway, like, mm. blow-up hit that, like, some of the other ones were. It mm-hmm. ends up being the seventh highest grossing Pixar film. Um, which, again, graded on the curve of it's a movie about rats in a kitchen. I think, like, right. you know, it, 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 it justifiable to have its place there. But I do feel right. like it's one people come back to and, like, always gets ranked in, like, the top five. Mm-hmm. Um, or, like, top three, even. I... It's hard for me not to put it number one. I'm like, what is it? Turning Red, Coco, and this. All kind of like in a perpetual battle to decide which one gets the seat. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, it's like, it's a film that you kind of just have to show someone to explain it It, to. Right, really. Because like I can do all of like the sermonizing and like thematic discussion, but much like, you know, when you let someone cook, the final product speaks for itself, and that's kind of what this film is. It's like, Truly. oh, yes, when you let a master artist just have a crack at it, you just have to see what the final product is. I mean, I have to say, I'm really glad that that we've come back to this in adulthood. I feel like I have not watched it critically in years, mm-hmm. or at all. Like, but, like, to say I haven't watched it critically at all, but, like... um yeah, I think I mentioned this to you last night where I was like, I like, I didn't know I loved this movie, but I do. I love this movie. I wanted to, ah, oh, shoot. I want to, we had a very funny um, phrasing for it. I kind of want to pull it up. Um, oh, yes. I didn't, I didn't know I loved this movie, but I do. And my response was, welcome to the snooty animation club. <laughs> we also watch Fantastic Mr. Fox sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, it's simultaneously like sort of one of the most highbrow and sophisticated things Pixar's ever done, but also one of the silliest and insane right. where somehow the fact that it's rats in the kitchen is the most important thing, but not. Uh, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Again, it is, you described it as a comfort film and I'm like, it truly is like a symphony. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like I described the beginning and the end as a symphony. Yeah, it's a cozy, sweet film that's, mm-hmm. like, beautiful. You could turn the dialogue off and just embrace the mood of it and right. just be completely swept away. And I think that's kind of, like, what makes film special. Right. I'd agree. And until we're back looking over the skyline of Paris, <laughs> drinking, squeezing a grape to create the illusion that it is a glass of wine, which truly is an underrated nice. physical comedy bit for those rats. Yeah. I'm Carter. And I'm Sydney. Have a magical day. Thanks for listening. The Disney Desk is brought to you by Carter and Sydney. Follow us on Twitter at Disney Desk for the latest updates about the show. Want more of the most magical podcast on Earth? The Disney Desk is now on Patreon. For exclusive weekly bonus content from us, go to patreon.com slash Disney Desk and become a patron for as little as $3 a month. Thank you. Going to the movies and watching a film. Yeah, it's the movies. Get some popcorn. Oh, look, there's also some jelly beans and Reese's cups. Hey, you guys. Okay, sorry, I had to. I'll kill you. (laughs) I'll actually kill you. Well, they haven't shown it. They didn't show it. Did they? Did they? The last two times we went, it was just like a Pepsi thing. Did they not show it? For when we saw, what's it call it? Christmas Night.